It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. This is a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so much for listening. On today's episode, we'll review Napoli's win over Crotone on the weekend. In part two, we'll recap all the other action from match day 10. And in part three, we'll preview our big Europa League match on Thursday. So let's start with Napoli's win over Crotone. Here's how it went. Kickoff local time. It's at Napoli who get the game underway. Played forward by Di Lorenzo. Lovely nutmeg Zielinski to go away from one player now. Insignia, Insignia cuts in. Insignia! Super goal! He's done it again! Lorenzo Insignia gives Napoli the lead. It's another fantastic goal from the little man. Insignia, it's straight at the wall. And it's at the uh, Crotone wall. Not a great free kick this time from Insignia. And that's the half-time whistle here. Crotone nil, Napoli won. Crotone, who get the second half underway. The referee is now pulling out a red card. So Petriccione has been sent off for Crotone. It was a dangerous challenge. And the VAR has stepped in. And Crotone are down to 10 men. Out wide to Insignia now. Napoli look for goal number two. Insignia's ball in. It's a lovely one. Lozano's there. And it's a good finish, an easy finish, and Napoli do make it too. Doesn't really have anyone to play it to though. Bakayoko wins it back, and he's found Lozano in an excellent position. Mertens is in the middle, here he is, Mertens. Just took a poor touch, and then the shot from Dem! Great strike, and it's three Napoli! 
Now Mertens lines it up for Petania. Can he make it four? He does. Petania also on the score sheet. And that's the cherry on the cake. It was always going to be an impossible task for the home side to really get anything out of this game. And that's the final whistle. It finishes Crotone nil and Napoli 4. So as you heard, Napoli won 4-0 on goals from Lorenzo Insigne, Diego Demme, Chucky Lozano, and Andrea Petagna. That was our second consecutive 4-0 win in Serie A after beating Roma last weekend. The scoreline doesn't tell the whole story. The first half was fairly even and it was very open right from the start. Credit to Crotone for taking the game to Napoli rather than sitting back. Either Crotone didn't get the memo that Napoli struggled to break down the low block or they watched the Roma match and realized that we can. Aside from a moment of brilliance from Lorenzo Insigne, which we'll get to shortly, the first half was fairly even. It was only after Jacopo Petriccione picked up a red card early in the second half that we began to take over. You have to wonder, or perhaps even be concerned about, how this match might have ended had Crotone not picked up that red card. We have a tendency to play to our opponent's level rather than just playing our own game. But regardless of how they come, all that matters is the three points. For this review, we'll revisit our three keys to the match, I'll talk briefly about some of our standout players, and I'll close with a few words on our match official Livio Marinelli. But first, let's get to the starting lineups. Crotone had two changes in the starting 11 compared to what we were expecting. Many of the players we expected to start were shifted around as well. Giovanni Stroppa lined up in a 3-5-2 with Alex Cordaz in goal. The back three were Luca Marone, Sebastiano Luperto, and Giuseppe Cuomo. We expected Luperto in the middle and Marone at center left, but they swapped spots and we had Lisandro Magalan at center right instead of Cuomo. Arcaduz Retza started at the left wing back and Pedro Pereira started at right wing back. The center of the midfield was shuffled as well. We had Salvatore Molina in the middle with Jacopo Petriccione at center left and Milos Vulic at center right. Instead, Petriccione lined up in the middle with Molina on the left and Ahmad Benali started on the right over Vulic. And up top were the usual duo of Simi and Junior Macias. For Napoli, there were two changes to our predicted 11 as well. One of those changes was David Ospina starting over Alex Meret in goal in the 4-2-3-1. The back four was as expected with Kaladu Koulibaly and Nikola Maksimovic at center back, Mario Rui on the left and Giovanni Di Lorenzo on the right. The other change was in the midfield. We had Diego Demis starting with Fabian Ruiz, but instead he started with Tiamoe Bakayoko. The front four were as expected as well. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing and Chucky Lozano started on the right wing. Piotr Zielinski started in the 10 spot once again and Andrea Petania got his first start at striker. Okay, so next let's get to our three keys of the match. The first was that Napoli had to take advantage of our pace on the wings. We definitely did that. Chucky Lozano was the focal point of our attack. He was wreaking havoc on the right side for the entire 77 minutes where he was on the pitch. Lozano was awarded for his efforts with the second goal of the match, which came from an Insigne cross from the left wing. On a few occasions, we saw our fullbacks get forward on the overlap, and we also saw our wingers looking to cut the ball back to the top of the box. We discussed both of those ideas in our preview. The only thing that wasn't particularly effective was the long ball, and that's because the rain made the pitch very slick. We saw that pretty much across Serie A this weekend. Our second key to the match was that we needed to press high and force Crotone's backline to make mistakes or play long balls back to us. My initial reaction watching the game live was that we failed in this respect, but after watching the match again, I'm going to call this one a push. This one was hard to judge because we had so much of the ball and a big lead in the second half, so there was little reason to press. 
So let's focus on the first half only, when the match was still close and both sides still had 11 men. I thought for the first part of the half we did press high and indeed Crotone were conceding possession cheaply. But for some reason about midway through the first half we adjusted and started to sit back. I don't know if that was intentional but regardless it did not work well. I thought Crotone were able to work out the back and through the midfield far too easily and had a number of half chances as a result of that. The third key to the match was we had to play direct and break the lines. I think we definitely did a good job of this. Once again, this key of the match was largely influenced by the red card, especially considering the red card was issued to a midfielder. But not only that, it was also because we had the lead when Crotone picked up the red card. I think if they get the red card when it was still nil-nil, Crotone would have dropped all nine outfield players behind the ball and played for the draw. But because they were down a goal, they needed to keep Simi and to an extent Junior Macias up top to push for the equalizer, which created a ton of space in the midfield. That obviously made it easier to break the lines as we saw on all three goals in the second half. However, we also did it before the red card, particularly on the first goal. We essentially moved up the entire field in only three passes. The play started with Di Lorenzo showing for Koulibaly on the right side and Koulibaly finding him. Di Lorenzo played a gorgeous ball to Zielinski who found the half space. Zielinski made a beautiful play to Nutmeg Cuomo before spotting Insigne in his favorite spot on the pitch, which is on the left corner of the box. Then the finish from Insigne was just world class. We've seen him score these goals before, bending his shot to the far post, but it never gets old. So having achieved two out of the three keys to the match and pushing on the other, it's not a big surprise that we won this match. Next, I want to very quickly talk about some of our players who stood out to me, both good and bad. Let's start with Lorenzo Insigne. I mentioned that beautiful goal he scored. He's really grown into the leader of this team. Big players make plays like this. The team wasn't playing particularly well and he comes out of nowhere and scores a goal like that. He also played a gorgeous ball to Lozano on the second goal. We've seen Lozano make that run to the back post a la Calejon before. Credit to Lozano there too, that wasn't a simple tap in. Lozano had plenty of work to do. He controlled the ball well with his first touch before calmly beating Cordaz. We also got to see Insigne play in the 10 spot for a few minutes, which is something a lot of Napoli Tifosi have wanted to see. Maybe it's because I'm so used to seeing him on the wing, but I thought he looked rather uncomfortable there. He also tended to drift out wide to his usual position, but obviously it would take some time to get used to that. At the end of the day though, when you look at that goal he scored and the cross that he played on the second goal, I don't think you can move Insigne away from that left wing. I want to quickly mention a few other players that impressed me. First was Diego Deme. Even though we play the 4-2-3-1 in the last two league matches, he's played a regista type role and it's worked very well. He fully deserved the goal he scored, which was very well taken. That's where he excelled with us last season. My only concern would be playing Deme and Bakayoko together. That's fine against bottom of the table clubs like Crotona, especially on a red card, but I don't think that combination provides enough creativity in attack as we saw in the first half of this match. I thought Dries Mertens was very good off the bench. He assisted on both Deme and Petania's goals and has more goal contributions than any other player on the team with 5 goals and 6 assists in 14 appearances in all competitions. And those stats don't account for work rate. When he plays, he does not stop running and he does his part on the defensive end as well. That's why I get frustrated when I see Napoli fans saying he can't start anymore if he goes a few matches without scoring because he does so much more than just score goals. The last player that deserves a shout in my opinion is Kostas Manolas. I thought he had a very solid game at the back. He made a play about midway through the first half where he chased down a very quick striker in Junior Macias and closed him down without committing a foul in the box. And then moments later, he blocked Retza's cross. 
I do also want to talk about two players who were heavily criticized in yesterday's game, which I think was a little bit harsh. The first was Giovanni Di Lorenzo, who had a rough start to the match, and even I was critical of him at the break. But when I watched the match again, I realized he actually wasn't so bad. I think his struggles in the first part of the first half left a mark and made us think he played worse than he actually did. There was one play where he hesitated and basically walked the ball out to touch, but he did get better as the match wore on. He made a nice slide tackle on Retza on the left wing in the 29th minute, and he played that gorgeous ball to Zielinski in the build-up to the first goal. He also made an excellent block in the 66th minute. The other player I want to talk about is Andrea Petania. I thought fans were being way too harsh on him. The problem with some of our fans, not all, just some, is they want immediate results, and the immediate response is the player needs to be replaced or benched. We saw that with Mertens when he went a few games without scoring. We saw that with Lozano last year when he was struggling, but sometimes players just need time. There's also no guarantees that if we brought in another player that that player would immediately succeed, and if they don't, our fans will be calling for them to be replaced as well, which is not a financially sound approach. For me, you need to give a player at least a full season before making a judgment on them. I mentioned previously that Petania went from being a regular starter at Spal for two seasons to being a substitute now, so that takes some getting used to. This was only his first start in Serie A. Yes, it was his 8th appearance, but he only played 99 minutes combined in those other 7 appearances. He has started 3 games in the Europa League, but look at who he played with. In all 3 matches, he played with Demem Bakayoko in the double pivot. Like I mentioned earlier, there's not much creativity there. Against Real Sociedad, Stanislav Lobotka played in the 10 spot, and in the other 2 matches, Elmas played over Insigne on the left wing. A player of Patania's qualities is only as good as the service he gets, and with that midfield, there's simply not enough quality there. He did get better service in this match and should have done better on one or two occasions, but he ultimately got his goal. I know he nearly bottled it, but it was also on his off foot. Hopefully that goal will boost his confidence. The last thing I'll say is, like Mertens, but in a different way, Patania provides more than just goals. He's a great holdup player because of his size and strength, and he often drags one or two defenders with him, which opens up space for other players. The last thing I want to quickly comment on is match official Livio Marinelli. I generally don't like to talk about the referees, but I thought he had just a horrible night. I don't actually have an issue with the yellow card he showed to Koulibaly early in the match. I'm on the record saying that it shouldn't matter when a foul is committed. A yellow card offense is a yellow card offense, and I think Koulibaly may have been guilty there. My criticism, though, is with Sedia officiating in general, because I've seen numerous matches where fouls were committed like this one early in a match, but because it was a first offense and because it was early, only a warning is given, so there has to be more consistency across the league. After that, Marinelli squeezed his whistle pretty tight, which is fine as long as it goes both ways, and it did. Then there was the red card. Somehow Marinelli only called a normal foul on this play. Thankfully, VAR intervened, and the correct decision was made. And finally, Marinelli gave Matteo Politano a yellow for simulation in the second half. I thought that was a terrible decision, especially because of how tight he was holding his whistle. Politano clearly didn't dive, he just fell over, he wasn't looking for a foul. I genuinely think that Marinelli was a little over-eager with his whistle on this play, and once he blew it, he had no choice but to furnish the yellow. So all in all, I thought Marinelli's performance was very poor. Fortunately, it didn't affect the outcome of the match. So that's our review of Napoli's win over Crotone. Up next, we'll recap all the other action from match day 10.
Sente un cuore lontano e comincia a cantare Siamo nati e cresciuti a Napoli Per noi non è solo una squadra di calcio, è una città Napoli è identità Napoli corre, lotta, si ribella Napoli è bella Qui non sei mai solo Qui puoi tutto Qui puoi spiccare il volo E allora tutti insieme Cantiamo in coro Next, we'll recap the rest of the action from match day 10 on what was a very rainy weekend all across Italy. In fact, the rain was so bad that Udinese's match against Atalanta had to be postponed, but the other 9 matches were played. We covered Napoli in part 1, so let's cover the other 8, and we'll start with the league leaders AC Milan. Milan beat Sampdoria 2-1. Milan's goals were scored by Frank Kessie from the penalty spot and Samu Castillejo, who scored with his first touch after coming on the pitch. Before the match, a moment of silence was observed in honor of the late Mario Maraschi, a former player of both of these clubs. He sadly passed away on Thursday at the age of 81. Sampdoria also wore a special edition fourth kit for this match. You could see straight from the start of the match that Sampdoria were set up to defend and counter. That was probably why Manolo Gabbiadini was in the starting 11 as Cagliarella doesn't have much pace any longer. The first half was pretty frustrating for Milan. They had no problems getting into the final third. But once they got there, they offered very little. Though Sampdoria rarely got forward, they actually had the best chance from open play. Gigio Donnarumma made an excellent reaction save on Lorenzo Tonelli's header early in the first half. Just before the break, Milan were awarded a penalty. I thought Milan were very fortunate to get this decision. The ball definitely hit Jakob Janto's hand and his arm was up. But the ball was headed into his hands by Antti Rebic. He knew nothing about it. Technically, by the letter of the law, this is indeed a penalty, but we've seen far fewer decisions like that this season compared to last season with the change in the interpretation of the handball rule. Frank Kessie converted the penalty. The match might as well have ended right there. Milan have never lost a game when Kessie scores. Not only that, according to the broadcast, Milan have won 15 of the 17 matches he scored in and drawn the other two. It's also worth noting that Teo Hernandez was the player who impressively won the header that led to the penalty. It seems Teo is the one who always wins these penalties for Milan. They've now had 8 in 10 matches, which is a Serie A record. Stefano Pioli made some really impressive substitutions in the second half. I have to admit, I was amongst those who doubted whether Pioli could be a long-term solution for Milan, but he's proving all of his doubters wrong, myself included. He replaced Brahim Diaz with Jens Petr Haug at the start of the second half and he made an impact almost immediately. Two minutes into the half he played a lovely ball to Sandro Tonali who took his shot first time with the outside of his right boot and seemingly in slow motion hit the upright. Then he made a couple of great plays on the second Milan goal. First he did well to win the header back to Teo on Tonali's high switch. Then he made a great move to get around Alex Ferrari. Finally, he squeezed a perfectly weighted through ball to Antti Rebic at the byline. Rebic cut the ball back to Cassiehu, 
who, as I mentioned, scored with his first touch about 30 seconds after entering the match. Claudio Ranieri is not a bad coach either. Sampdoria played much more positively in the second half and nearly pulled off a draw. About five minutes before the Castillejo goal, Morten Thorsby had an open header in front of goal and he couldn't keep it down. Then five minutes after the goal, Sampdoria pulled one back. Albin Ekdal flicked a header from the corner toward the near post and the ball just barely crossed the line, which was confirmed by the goal line technology. Like Castillejo, Ekdal came on at the start of the second half. Then right before the final whistle, Ekdal had a free header after a great play by Antonio Candreva to shake off Kessie and play in the cross. Unfortunately, like Thorsby, Ekdal was unable to keep his header down, so Milan hung on for the win, even if just barely, and with that win, they remain at the top of the table. Second place Inter beat Bologna 3-1 on goals by Romelu Lukaku and a brace from Ashraf Hakimi. Emmanuel Vignato scored the lone goal for Bologna. Once again, we have to talk about Lukaku. He now has 8 goals in Serie A to go with his 4 in the Champions League. Watching live, it looked to me like Lukaku shoved Tomiyasu out of the way, but on the replay, we saw that it was actually Tomiyasu that had a handful of Lukaku's shirt. He just got completely outmuscled by Lukaku, as many defenders do. As they said in the broadcast, we saw everything about Lukaku in this goal. I mentioned his strength. We also saw his composure and his technique on the shot. We also really saw the depth of Inter with the rotations that Conte made in his squad. He started Ashraf Hakimi and Ivan Perisic at wingback over Matteo Darmian and Ashley Young. He started Arturo Vidal over Nicolo Barella and Alexis Sanchez over Lautaro Martinez. Perisic played the cross on that Lukaku goal. Then just before the break, two more of those depth players combined to score Inter's second goal. Marcelo Brozovic played a gorgeous long ball over the top to Hakimi. He took the ball down really nicely and calmly rolled the finish past Lukas Korupski. Bologna's bench was not to be outdone though. In the 67th minute, substitutes Nicolas Dominguez and Emmanuel Vignato combined to pull one back. The Inter defending was really poor on this goal. There was a lot of standing around and watching in the box and no one picked up the run of Vignato at the back post. Unfortunately for Mihailovic, his other substitute, Omar Kailotti, got torched a few minutes later by Hakimi before the youngster scored his second. In Kailotti's defense, he didn't get much help and Hakimi has the pace to run past any player 1v1. Conte then brought some regulars on. Darmian replaced Hakimi, despite Hakimi being on a hat-trick. Lautaro replaced Lukaku and Barella replaced Vidal. With that quality, it was never going to be easy for Bologna. With how they played, Bologna were never going to get a result in this match, though. Other than the goal, they didn't create any real goal-scoring threats until the final minute of added time. And with the win, Inter remained 5 points back of Milan for top spot. Meanwhile, Roma drew Sassuolo 0-0 in an important match for both of these sides. This was a great result for Napoli, who moved clear ahead of both of these teams with the draw. Even though there weren't any goals, this was a very entertaining and a very controversial match. Marash Kumbula was back in the starting 11 for Roma since recovering from COVID, and Gonzalo Villar started over the injured Jordan Vertu. There were questions about whether this match would even be played because of the quality of the pitch, which was absolutely soaked. That negated the long ball, which in turn negated the effectiveness of players like Jeremy Boga. Roma and Sassuolo exchanged half chances in the first half, but neither side were able to hit the mark. The real talking point from the first half was Pedro picking up two yellow cards. I know a lot of Romanisti felt hard done by by referee Fabio Maresca, but at least as far as these yellow cards go, I think he got them right. On the first one, Pedro clearly kicked Domenico Berardi with a high boot. The second was for a tactical foul, which is normally fine to take, but not when you're already on a yellow. You expect a veteran like Pedro to be smarter than that. 
Surprisingly, though, Roma actually played better after going down a man. In the 45th minute, Edin Dzeko broke free after Marlin misjudged the long ball. Lorenzo Pellegrini passed on the open shot instead, opting to play the return pass to Dzeko. His shot was blocked, but Mkhitaryan put away the rebound. However, VAR reviewed the play and determined that Dzeko fouled Locatelli just before Mkhitaryan's shot. I think that was the correct decision as well. Had a player been fouled like that in the opponent's box, a penalty definitely would have been given, so it should also be called when it happens in your own box. Things were not going Roma's way on this night just before the final whistle. Filip Juricic broke free, but there was a delayed call for offside. Antonio Mirante had a few choice words for Maresca and was shown a yellow card, and that was the final straw for a very frustrated Paolo Fonseca, who also had a few words for the referee after the halftime whistle was blown. That was enough for him to be shown a red card as well. Nevertheless, Roma continued to press in the second half. Romanisti can blame Maresca all they want, but they also need to blame themselves a little bit. Roma had plenty of opportunities in the second half, but weren't able to score. They also had some bad luck. In the 59th minute, Spinazzola drove towards the byline and crossed for Dzeko. He nudged the ball towards the goal, but hit the upright. Dzeko had another chance in the 63rd minute. He turned at the top of the box and fired with his left foot, but just missed the far post. Roma were not the only ones to have a goal disallowed in this match. In the 75th minute, Ahmad Traorde and Lucas Haraslin combined to score a ridiculous goal from well outside the box just moments after they both came on. The finish was stunning, but unfortunately Haraslin was a fraction offside, and that goal was taken away. Minutes after that chance, Mkhitaryan surged forward from deep, but once again missed the target with his left boot. Then Dzeko had another chance in the 78th minute, but Gianluca Pegolo was equal to the task. Moments before that chance, Pedro Obiang put his studs into the top of Lorenzo Pellegrini's foot. Pellegrini tried to play through it, but was forced to leave the match. That was the one decision that I think Maresca got wrong. I think that should have been a red card. With just over 10 minutes remaining, who knows if Roma would have scored had Obiang been sent off. But like I said, Roma were not without their chances. That draw caused both of these clubs to drop in the table. I mentioned that Napoli moved into third. Juventus moved into fourth with their 2-1 win over Torino. If you only checked the scoreboard, that wouldn't have come as a big shock. You probably wouldn't have guessed that Torino had the lead for the first 77 minutes of this match. That lone Torino goal was scored by Nicolas Nkulu only 9 minutes into the match. He was brought in to help shore up the defense, not the score. The defending from Rodrigo Bentancur on the corner kick was awful. Nkulu was fortunate the ball fell for him, but he deserves full credit for the finish. Torino had the better chances in the first half. In the 14th minute, Wojtek Szczesny made an excellent save on Simone Zaza, who was clear on goal. Then in the 20th minute, Carolinetti had a chance to get clear on goal, but Matthias De Ligt made a vital shoulder-to-shoulder tackle to stop the attack. Juventus looked very average for most of this match. They struggled to break through Torino's wall of defense. Lianco was really good in this match. He made a couple of really important blocks. This was an uncharacteristically quiet match for Dan Klusevski. He was replaced by Aaron Ramsey in the 57th minute. The problem for Torino, especially in the second half, is that they just couldn't keep the ball. Every time they got forward, they just gave it right back. That's going to really wear you down, and you saw that on the second Juve goal. Juan Cuadrado was clearly Juve's best player. He had a goal disallowed in the 57th minute because Bonucci was offside. This was another passive offside call, but it was the correct one. Bonucci jumped out of the way of the ball, so he did interfere with the play. Cuadrado assisted on both of Juve's goals. The first was a header by Weston McKenney, which was his first for the club, and the second was a header from Bonucci. So somehow Juve walked away from this match with a win. 
Meanwhile, Torino blew yet another lead. This is the fourth time they've blown a lead late in a match. Against Sassuolo, Torino were up 3-1 in the 79th minute and conceded in the 84th and 85th minute to draw 3-3. Against Lazio, they were up 3-2 after normal time, but Lazio scored in the 95th minute to tie and in the 98th minute to win. Then against Inter, Torino led 2-1 in the 64th minute and ended up losing that match 4-2. The one consolation for Torino is they are all strong clubs. Besides these clubs, they've also lost to Atalanta, so I have a feeling this team will start to string together a few wins once they have a stretch against some weaker competition. With those results, Sassuolo dropped to 5th and Roma dropped to 6th in the table. Meanwhile, Lazio moved up to 7th with their win over Spezia on Saturday in a very entertaining match. Ciro Immobile and Sergei Milinkovic-Savic scored for Lazio, while Mbala and Zola scored the lone goal for Spezia. Even though Lazio had two goals disallowed for offside in the first half, both of which looked very tight, I thought Spezia deserved a better result than a loss for how well they played. I love the way Vincenzo Italiano has this Spezia team playing, they're very organized, every player knows their role. They play a positive game, they're not just sitting back and defending and looking to counter. When they get the ball, they try to keep it, and in the attacking half, they often play quick one-touch passes. We saw that right away in this match. In the third minute, Nahuel Estevez completed a lovely interplay with Inzola, Julio Majora, and Diego Farias before firing on target. Pepperina just got a hand on the ball, which was enough to push the shot off the upright and out. That was the first of two occasions that Spezia hit the upright. The second was in the 20th minute when Simone Bastoni's left-footed strike beat Pepperina, but not the post. We saw some beautiful football on the Inzola goal as well. It started with an excellent tackle by Claudio Terzi on Gian Daniel Akpa Akpro. He gave the ball to Matteo Ricci who played a gorgeous long ball to Inzola. Then the finish from Inzola was sublime and he beat one of the best center backs in all of Serie A at the moment in Francesco Acerbi. Inzola made up for missing a golden opportunity all alone from about 8 yards out but he pulled the shot wide of the goal. Meanwhile, Lazio didn't have too many chances, but they made the most of them when they presented themselves. Lazio opened the scoring in the 15th minute after Milinkovic-Savic snuck in on Majora to steal possession. He then sent Immobile on the wing, and the striker did the rest, coolly tucking the ball between the legs of Ivan Providel. Milinkovic-Savic doubled Lazio's lead with a stunning free kick. Providel was fooled into thinking the shot was going to his left, and by the time he realized otherwise, he could do nothing but watch the ball glide into the back of the goal. Spezia threw everything they could at Lazio, but it wasn't enough. This may not have been Lazio's best performance, but good teams find a way to win. In other action, Hellas Verona drew Cagliari 1-1. Mattia Zaccagni scored for Verona, while Razvan Marin scored for Cagliari. The last time Cagliari won this fixture was in January of 1972. Meanwhile, Verona have had their best start defensively in 20 years with four clean sheets in total. I thought this match was all about momentum. Verona started out looking like the stronger side and opened the scoring after a wild sequence in the 8th minute. From the corner kick, Samuel Di Carmine at the back post hit the bar. Then the rebound fell for Davide Faraoni and his shot hit the upright before Di Carmine tapped in the second rebound. However, VAR reviewed the play and found that Di Carmine was offside so this goal was taken away. Verona did get their goal in the 21st minute. Once again, Faraoni was involved. He made a great run on the wing to receive Antonin Barak's perfectly weighted ball. Alessio Cranio challenged but couldn't get there quickly enough, at least not before Faraoni squared to Matias Zaccagni. He finished the play with his second goal in as many matches. After that, the momentum shifted and Cagliari looked like the better side. Leonardo Pavoletti was very involved in Cagliari's attack. He got his second start in a row while Giovanni Simeone continues to recover from COVID. 
Last week, he scored his first Serie A goal in 18 months. This week, he got an assist with a lovely layoff to Marin, who did the rest. Pavoletti had a number of chances after that. In the 60th minute, he just missed the far post after Gabriele Zappa outran Federico Ceccherini on the wing. Pavoletti had another chance in the 64th minute on the counterattack, but again his shot was wide of the mark. Ricardo Sotil did all the work on that play, charging down the middle of the field. Sotil was very good once again in this match. A minute later, Pavoletti had his best chance. He managed to flick his header on target from a tight angle, but Marco Silvestri did really well to push the shot off the bar and out. Immediately after that chance, Ivan Juric made a double substitution replacing Matias Akani with Abri Macaulay and Samuel Di Carmine with Andrea Favilli. That shifted the momentum back in Verona's favor. Verona had a few chances to go back on top in the 69th minute. Eddie Calcedo had a free header from the corner kick, but he couldn't keep it down. Then in the 80th minute, Favilli made a nice turn at the top of the box after a lovely buildup from Di Marco and Salcedo, but Favilli skied his shot over the bar. And in the 86th minute, Di Marco played a dangerous ball into the area and Favilli got his head on the ball, but didn't get enough of it and the shot missed the target. In the end, Caliri managed to hold off Verona's attack. Both sides will feel like they missed an opportunity to secure three points, but the draw was probably a fair result. Moving down the table, Parma played Benevento to a scoreless draw in the first meeting ever between these two clubs. I don't have much to say about this match, it was pretty much as bad as it gets. Both sides had plenty of half chances, but neither created any serious goal scoring threats. I suppose you could call Lapadula's shot in the 78th minute a good chance, but even he was upset at Roberto Insigne for not making the run to the back post, suggesting that it was actually a pass. The 0-0 draw was exactly what the performance from both of these clubs warranted. The way these two sides have been playing, I think Parma will take any point that they can get, but Benevento will be disappointed with the draw. In the final match of the round, Genoa drew Fiorentina 1-1. For about three quarters of the match, this game was almost unwatchable. Both sides were playing very defensively. Fiorentina were definitely the more dangerous side in the second half. In the 68th minute, Fiorentina made claims for a penalty, but clearly Valovic's shot came off the back of Giacomo Bonaventura. Moments later, Valovic had a clear chance in front of goal after Biragi's shot deflected in his direction, but he somehow missed the goal. Then Bonaventura thought he scored the opening goal of the match in the 70th minute. He was only on the pitch because Gaetano Castrovilli picked up an injury in the first half. VAR reviewed the plan correctly overturned the goal as Bonaventura pulled Lucas Larraguerre down only moments before scoring the goal. Sofian Amrabat came close to scoring in the 77th minute, but he was stopped by Alberto Pagliari. Pagliari replaced Federico Marchetti, who picked up an injury in only his second match since returning from injury. After all of that, Genoa shocked Fiorentina with a goal in the 89th minute. Two substitutes, Mattia Destro and Marco Piazza, combined on this goal. That was only a minute after Destro himself found the back of the goal, but he was called offside. Fiorentina had plenty of time to play for the draw with six minutes of added time. Destro had another excellent chance in the 94th minute, but Dragovski made an excellent save to keep the deficit at one. That turned out to be a very important save. After a wild scramble in front of goal, Nikola Milenkovic scored on Fiorentina's third attempt on the play to salvage a point and save Cesare Prandelli from starting with three consecutive losses. Meanwhile, Rolando Maran has to be concerned about his future after coming within mere seconds of his first win in Serie A since beating Crotone on match day one. So that wraps up match day 10. In part three, we'll preview our match against Real Sociedad on Thursday.
In the final part, we'll preview Napoli's match on Thursday against Real Sociedad. In some ways, La Real are like the Milan of La Liga. Prior to this past weekend, La Real spent six weeks at the top of the table. That was somewhat misleading though. Throughout that period, Atletico Madrid had two games in hand, and winning both of those games would have put them at the top of the table. Second place in La Liga is nothing to scoff at though. Atleti have been in fine form this season. After a win and two draws in their first three, they've won seven straight in the league. With that run, Atleti have taken over top spot even though they still have those two games in hand. No doubt Sociedad have benefited from Barcelona and Real Madrid struggling to get results consistently this season, but Sociedad are a very good team. They have only one loss on the season and won six straight before drawing their last two. Sociedad have had less success in the Europa League. They started with a 1-0 win over Rijeka before losing 1-0 to Napoli. Then they beat Alkmaar 1-0 before drawing their next two, 0-0 in Holland, and then 2-2 to Rijeka. That's good enough for second in the group, tied with Alkmaar on 8 points, 2 points behind Napoli. That means that a Napoli win would guarantee that we win the group. We could also win the group with a draw, but we would need help from Rijeka. A draw would guarantee Napoli advance to the knockout stage. Napoli could still advance even with a loss, but we would need Rijeka to at least tie Alkmaar, which seems unlikely considering that Rijeka have only 1 point in 5 matches, but who knows, they drew Sociedad last week. We have to be careful though because a loss could also knock us out of the competition altogether if Alkmaar beats Rijeka. This is not going to be a popular opinion amongst Napoli Tifosi, but I honestly would not be too upset about getting knocked out. I know we won a trophy, but you still need to win 5 straight matches to win the cup and there will be some very strong competition. We have the quality to beat any team, but for me, qualifying for next year's Champions League is far more important than making a deep run in the Europa League. I know that if you win the Europa League, you automatically qualify for the Champions League, but for me, nothing would be worse than making a deep run in the Europa League only to get eliminated in the semifinals or worse in the final. That would stretch our resources very thin and potentially jeopardize our chances of qualifying for the Champions League. There is a dramatic difference financially between qualifying for the Champions League and qualifying for the Europa League. You do not want to miss the Champions League for consecutive years. Each time you do, it becomes more and more difficult to get back in, and we can just look to Milan as an example of that. I also think that if we're not playing in Europe, and most of the other big clubs are, then we have a legitimate chance of winning the Scudetto, much like Lazio did last season. Anyhow, let's get back to this match and to Sociedad. The difference between their success in La Liga compared to the Europa League is goal scoring. Defensively, Sociedad are very sound. They've only allowed 5 goals in 12 matches in La Liga and 3 goals in 5 matches in the Europa League. But they're scoring nearly 2 goals per game in La Liga and less than 1 goal per game in the Europa League. Most of Sociedad's goals come from their wingers. Mikel Oyarzabal and Porto have scored 12 of Sociedad's 26 goals in all competitions. That's why the loss of Oyarzabal is such a big loss for La Real. The 23-year-old captain of Sociedad picked up a grade 1 hamstring strain, which is the same injury that Lorenzo Insigne suffered earlier this season. From Insigne's injury, we know that is a 4-8 week recovery time, which means that Oyarzabal will not play in this match. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Imanol Aguasil uses either a 4-1-4-1 or a 4-2-3-1 formation. Sociedad's starting 11 is difficult to predict as Alguacil rotates his players quite a bit. Alex Romero will start in goal. Robin Lenormand is a fixture at center back, but Alguacil has rotated between Modibo Sanyan, Aritz Alsutondo, and Igor Zubeldia as the other center back. I genuinely think it's a toss-up between those three players, but since Sanyan played against Napoli last time and we created very little in attack, I'll take him to start this one. 
El Sutondo could also slide out to right back and he's been used there quite often as well. Right back is another position where Alguacil rotates quite a bit. Aldoni Gorozabel started against Napoli last time and Jose Bezaldua has featured often as well. Like with Sanyan, I think if it ain't broke, don't fix it, so we'll go with Gorozabal. Nacho Monreal is the regular starter at left back. Mika Merino is a fixture in the double pivot. Ander Guevara seems to be the preferred option in La Liga, and Martin Zubimendi seems to be the preferred option in the Europa League, so we'll take Zubimendi to start. There are also questions in the front four. We know for sure that Alexander Isak will start at striker and Porto will start on the right wing. With David Silva hurt, I think we'll see Roberto Lopez in the 10th spot, although Alguacil has also used Adnan Yanuzai there. And as we mentioned, left winger Mikel Oyarzabal is also injured. Martin Merkelans played on the left side in Sociedad's most recent match in La Liga against Alaves. Ander Berenchea is another option on the left side. So that was a lot of names, so let me quickly recap. We have Alex Ramiro in goal, Robin Lenormand and Modibo Sanyan at centre-back, Nacho Monreal at left-back and Andoni Gorozabal at right-back, Mikel Merino and Martin Zubimendi in the double pivot, Roberto Lopez in the 10th spot, Martin Merkelans on the left wing, Porto on the right wing, and Alexander Isak at striker. Gennaro Gattuso will line up in the 4-2-3-1. Normally Gattuso prefers David Ospina in big matches, but Ospina has played the last two matches against Alkmaar and then against Crotone, so I think we'll see Alex Meret get the start here. At the back, we should continue to see Kaladu Koulibaly lined up alongside Nikola Maksimovic at centre-back. I'm very curious to see who starts at left-back. Judging by how long it took Piotr Zielinski and Elif Elmas to return to full fitness, I don't think Elsid Kusai will start this match. I'm not even sure he'll be in the squad. Fauzi Gulam has been the preferred option lately in the Europa League, but with how Sociedad play and with the youth Sociedad have in their squad, I think Gulam would struggle to keep up. For that reason, I'm going to go with the quicker Mario Rui to start this match, and Giovanni Di Lorenzo should start at right back. In the double pivot, I think we'll see Tiamui Bakayoko paired with Fabian Ruiz. I wouldn't mind seeing Diego Demis start over Bakayoko, I think he would certainly deserve it. Up top, we'll see Lorenzo Insigne on the left wing and Matteo Politano on the right wing. He's been the preferred option in the Europa League. Piotr Zielinski should start in the 10th spot, and with Andrea Petagna playing the full 90 minutes against Crotone, and with Victor Osman still recovering from his shoulder injury, Dries Mertens will almost certainly start at striker. In case you missed it, Victor Osman is expected to miss more time. Tuto Sport were reporting that Osman's recovery was taking longer because his doctors in Nigeria did more damage trying to put the shoulder back in place. Osman was quick to deny that report on social media, tweeting simply, not true though, in response to Football Italia's post. Napoli's official Twitter account added that the situation regarding Osman's injury is only a consequence of the dislocation of the shoulder. So next, let's get to our three keys to the match. The first is we need to be very disciplined in our defending. Even with Oyarzabal and Silva out, Sociedad have a lot of weapons in attack with players like Isak, Merino, and so on, and they play a lot of one-touch passes. When we don't have the ball, we need to drop into that 4-4-2 or even a 4-5-1 and keep our structure. We can't chase players and get pulled out of position. That would create too much space for Sociedad to pass around us and get into dangerous positions. The second is we need to be better from set pieces and crossing the ball. I mentioned that Sociedad have only conceded 8 goals in 17 matches between La Liga and the Europa League. Two of those goals were from the penalty spot, so only 6 were from open play. One of the goals was scored by Politano in our first meeting, which took a fortuitous deflection to beat Ramiro. Four of the other 5 goals came from crosses. Three of those goals were headers, and two of those goals, actually the two that Rijeka scored in last week's Europa League match, were from corner kicks. The third key is we need to keep our composure whether we go up or fall behind. 
Obviously, I'm less concerned if we go up because we know this team can shut down an opponent after taking a lead. I'm more concerned about going down a goal, which goes back to the mental fragility of this club. If we do, we can't put our heads down, we can't panic, and we can't force the play. We need to continue to play our game and stick to our game plan, or if that's not working, then Gattuso will need to make an adjustment. If we do go behind, hopefully it's in the first half, not only because it gives us more time to come back, but also because Gattuso has been very good at adjusting at the break. If we go down in the second half, that will be problematic. We haven't been very good at adjusting in the second half. The head official for this match is Oral Grinfeld. His assistants are Roy Hassan and Aiden Yarkoni. And the fourth official is Gal Leibovitz. And there is no VAR in the group stage. For my prediction, I'm going to go with a 1-1 draw with goals coming from Dries Mertens and Porto. In his pre-match conference, Gattuso talked about how qualifying for the knockout stage is the club's first goal. Obviously, that means the club is taking this tournament seriously. That said, knowing that a draw is enough to get us through, I think the primary focus will be to keep a clean sheet. That defensive focus combined with Sociedad's stellar defensive abilities will mean it will be very difficult for Napoli to score. Hopefully the club can continue to be motivated by the passing of Diego Maradona. This will be the first match played at the renamed Stadio Diego Armando Maradona. I'm not terribly confident in this prediction though with Sociedad needing to win. This could be a very open match which could mean a lot of goals. Hopefully in that case we score first and end up with a 2-0 or a 3-1 type of win. So that's my preview of Napoli vs Real Sociedad. That will also do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of us, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at ForzaNapoliPod. We'll talk to you again later in the week to review this match and to preview our next one. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.